0: This is the Physical Activity Researcher podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome,
1: everyone. My name is Lise Kokkonen, and this is Practitioner's Viewpoint. In this series of podcasts, I will be interviewing practitioners from different fields on how they see physical activity and sedentary behavior in their work. We will share good practices around the world. Today, I have the honor to introduce my guest, Dr. Brendan Stoops. Dr. Stoops is a clinical academic physiotherapist with an interest in physical activity and mental health. He has a PhD in pain medicine and rehabilitation, and he has published over 500 academic papers in several leading journals. His recent key publications include European Psychiatric Association guidelines and position statement on the use of physical activity for severe mental health illness. So in this episode today, we are going to talk about physical activity in the care of mental illness. What is the role of physical activity in treating most common mental illnesses and what are the mechanisms behind good results? So welcome, Dr. Brandon
2: Stoops. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be on your podcast and talking with you.
1: Um, so let's start with your own background. Uh, how or why did you get interested in physiotherapy? And uh, why did you choose mental illness to focus on your research and on, in your work?
2: Sure. Um, this is a long convoluted story, so I'll give it a bit brief. Um uh, version. My, my original vision was to be, uh, a physiotherapist for my favourite football team when I was 16 year old. I thought, I really want to go and just travel and go and watch football all of the time. That was my idea. Um, for Newcastle United in the UK. Um, and it didn't quite work out like that, which is, which is, which is great. And I'm very pleased about that for lots of different reasons. Um, and during the course of my physio training and undergraduate, I became interested in mental health. Um, I did a bit before I went on to my physio training and spent some time in a mental health hospital. Thought it was quite interesting. And, and then when I left university, I was just so tired from the physio degree and doing placements over summer in hospitals. I just thought I'm just going to have a couple of months of doing nothing. Um, and I went to go back and live with my mum and dad and my mum was just like, Brendan, why don't you go in and talk to the head of physio at um, the local mental health hospital where she was um, head pharmacist. He'd go and talk to the head of physio. So I was like, all right, mum. As a young 20, I just turned 21. I was like, okay, I'll go in just to keep her happy and kind of get her off my back. Um, Thanks, mum. And um, I did go in and talk to the head of physiotherapy and before I knew it she was making this really strange proposition which was very unusual then still relatively unusual now why don't you come and spend a bit of time working with us in this mental health trust so um, I was like sure why not yeah why not Why well, let's give it a go and, and that was my chance and exposure to have more experience in mental health uh, hospitals and environment and working with the wonderful people um, uh, that, uh, that, that, that come to have help in mental health hospitals. And I went on to go and do some more traditional physiotherapy things, you know, working in football clubs and other things, not, not my favorite football team. Um, you know, working in general hospitals and all of the usual stuff that physiotherapists and clinicians do and stroke units, etc, etc But I kept coming back to mental health. Um, and that's where I've happily made my home since. That's a short version
1: thank you you have to um thank your mother i guess for 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 your career in a way but it's a great story Uh, so you work in king's college in london as a senior clinical lecturer at the institute of psychiatry physiology and neuroscience now and you're also head of physiotherapy at south london and maudsley nhs foundation trust so um What are the projects that you are involved in now? How much clinical work do you do? How much teaching, you know, how is working life for you now?
2: Yeah, it's it's great. You know, I just, I I really enjoy working as a clinician and helping foster and grow a physiotherapy team in the Mental Health Trust. So I've got these two combined roles where I'm head of physiotherapy in our trust um, and the main hospital is on the same site as the academic site of the Institute of Psychiatry. So it's great in that they're both on the same site so that the best, you know, research can happen on the same site and in the same areas where the hospital is and be really integrated. So it's a wonderful environment to have that modelled. And there's lots of other professional groups that really advance this. So it's quite new for physiotherapy to be doing this. Um, and um, I spent two days uh, working in the Trust um, part of that time is developing and growing our physiotherapy team, raising our profile across the trust, developing and mentoring, um, lots of physios and students, encouraging clinical placements, you know, PhD students who come in or, or masters physio students or BSC students who come and do um time with us to sort of you know clinical work or sort of you know dissertation work and then we try and get them to come and do a bit of clinical work with us. Um, and, and that's just great and wonderful to see people grow and develop, um, across clinical services. And then I clinically do a, a day a week, um, sometimes more. And my work is predominantly, uh, in secure forensic, um, psychiatry or hospital. Um, and this is just like a typical musculoskeletal, um, outpatient clinic, but in a very specialist environment. And the people that I see have come into hospital under specific circumstances. So they have a diagnosis of one or several of these, such as schizophrenia spectrum disorders, or psychoses, um, bipolar disorder, personality disorder. And they have come into contact with the criminal justice system. And research shows again and again and again that these people are much more likely to harm themselves or be at risk of harm from other people than to go out and hurt other people. But of course, that's not the narrative which you see in the media or is played out in films or TV. We've got this stigmatised version of people with these conditions. But the research shows the complete opposite. But of course, when people are unwell, sometimes people do things which means they end up in, in, in the criminal justice system. So instead of languishing in a mainstream prison, having a serious mental health condition, they come into a forensic hospital where I work with them over a period of time and that's the basis of my clinical work and it's predominantly helping treat people with a variety of musculoskeletal conditions, Um, you know, occasional things such as people having a stroke, people having a fracture and very much helping people to become more active and less sedentary. It's a very restrictive environment so helping promote people to move, be less sedentary and move more is very, very important. That's the basis of my clinical work. Um, would you like to say anything about that before I talk about research?
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask that. when you when you um, when you started. You said uh, your job or your work in the mental care um, in mental care was quite unusual uh, in the young physiotherapists that come into your trust. For example, do you see that it's more popular now to work with mental health uh, disorders, or, or how do you see that?
2: Most definitely. Yeah, I mean, uh 2003 was when I first went in to go and work in mental health hospitals and, uh, and environments. And all of my friends who are all physiotherapists thought, what the heck are you doing? You know, they're all going off to do these like standard rotations. And, you know, I just went off on this complete tangent. And everybody just did exactly the same thing. You go in and you get these basic rotations in in the UK and and this is a very standard route and virtually at that time nobody did anything different. Times have changed generally so there's much more flexibility of what people do but public attitudes have changed much more towards mental health, um, mental illness um, which is is very good. People talk very openly uh, about their experiences so it's much more of a public conscience now. Previously it was something we didn't talk about publicly. Um so it's much more acceptable and people are much more interested overall in public I would say and, and are intrigued about, you know, mental health, mental illness, and also within the physiotherapy profession, you know, the amount of times I go to lecture or talk at universities, whether we're students or other clinicians, and people are people are genuinely really interested. What is it like? You know, how are the people there? And I'm just like, they're people exactly like me and you. And I start off with every lecture with students and say one in four of us in this room will experience, you know, a mental health symptom or condition at some point in our lives. This is not just about people that come into our hospital. This is, you know, it could be any one of us at some point that needs help and needs some time in hospital. And generally, if you're going to see a physiotherapist, so whether you work in stroke or you work in, you know, pain services, Things are not going well overall. So even if you don't work in mental health services, people are in pain, having difficulty moving, not able to do the things they want. So it's unsurprising that physiotherapists tend to see people who may have elevated mental health symptoms or even conditions as well. So it's my view that mental health is, is 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 everybody's business. We all have physical health. We all have mental health. There's times when my physical health is going to go wrong and not be so good, and there's times when my mental health is not going to be great too so we need to be much more open about it and I'm seeing a younger generation of people being much you know really really open about it, which really encourages me
1: yeah it's it's really great to hear and as you said in the beginning that you're you know at 16 years of age your dream job was to be the physiotherapist of your um, favorite football club so you never know your your experience from the mental health might at one day you know take you to the sports back to the sports also
2: of course yeah why not
1: yeah you never know because we now have a lot of research i guess that um among athletes mental health problems are maybe even more common that than in the general um population but that's not our topic today so let's uh let's continue um i'd like to talk about your book you have uh, written a book about mental illness and uh exercise or evidence-based exercise interventions for mental illness and you've you've written it uh, with Dr. Simon Rosenbaum and it's the first evidence-based book in this area. So maybe we could start with the definition of mental illness. What is the definition and what are the most common mental illness diagnoses that we come across to?
2: Sure it's a great it's a great point. So we'll we we'll talk about mental health and mental illness. So we all have physical health, we all have mental health, and mental health is just our you know our general mental well being, how we're feeling, how we're functioning in life and our psychological well being. And there's times when, you know, it could be in a particular event that happens to us or it could be a series of events or it could just be you know often people it's difficult to pinpoint on, where people can cross over a threshold where they may be severely interfering with their um, daily life, you know, over a consistent period of time. This is not sort of uh, fluctuations over a week of feeling sad or, you know, after, you know, a relationship breakup, for instance, or a change in circumstances. This is an extended period where someone's functioning uh, and ab- an ability to, co- you know, cope and live life has been substantially impaired. And diagnoses are made by the ICD-10 criteria or DSM-5 criteria, ordinarily by a psychiatrist, sometimes by a general practitioner. And they will ordinarily screen for symptoms and then make a structured diagnosis of a mental ill health uh, or a mental illness. Um, And that is the usual route which people go through. Um, And the most common mental illness diagnoses um, are some what we call common mental disorders uh, or common mental illnesses, um, and these tend to be clusters of anxiety um, and stress-related disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, um, and depression, and these are commonly co-occur together, sort of depression and anxiety. Um, and if you're looking specifically at clinical diagnoses you know, around one in ten people um may have one of these conditions at any particular time. So uh that is that is how uh, common um these specific you know clinical conditions are. If you look at symptoms, so a screening measure um such as a PHQ nine um or or, or or uh you know hospital anxiety and depression scale, you know people may present with symptoms and have depressive or anxiety symptoms at a much higher threshold. Twenty percent, but when you do a clinical diagnosis, that is what what happens. Uh, in around, around approximately ten percent have a, a common mental um, uh, disorder uh, or illness. Um, so that is a main cluster. Then there is another cluster of uh, conditions, and there's lots of mental illnesses that we could you know spend the rest of the time talking about this. Um, so the brevity, I'll, I'll focus on on two key areas. Then there's this other umbrella term. Not to say that any mental illness is not serious, but what we tend to call serious mental illnesses. Um, and as I say, any mental illness can be serious, but this tends to include people with schizophrenia spectrum disorders or psychosis. Those words are often used interchangeably. This heterogeneous cluster of conditions where people, uh, you know, tend to have cognitive dysfunction. Um, and may uh, have positive symptoms such as um, you, know, you know hearing 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 voices, um, being slightly you know agitated, um, you know slightly energetic. Or people may have negative symptoms at other times, and that's being a bit more amotivated, you know flat. Um and just finding it more difficult to cope, and people often have unusual experiences, like I mentioned. they see things, hallucinations, you know, which would be very scary I've, I've sat in consultations with patients um and they've said you know they're seeing like a snake or a dragon and the wall, and you know clearly it's it's not there, and you know for me that would be enormously distressing. if I saw you know this huge spider or if I heard a voice that was telling me to you know to you know talking to me, it would just be. It would be strange, but it's recognizing within the schizophrenia spectrum that before that as well, we talked about symptoms in the context of common mental disorders. Is you know around one in ten or I think one in fifteen of people will have psychotic episodes. And these may be one-off episodes um, or one-off experiences where you may see something one-off, you may hear a voice one time one-off. Um, and these are what we recognize as psychotic episodes. And, so, and many of these people don't ever go on to have another episode, another instance. Some may go on to develop you know other mental health issues, but some don't. And this affects around you know one to two percent of the population schizophrenia spectrum disorders as well. The other cluster is bipolar disorder, and again, it's a very heterogeneous cluster of disorders affecting sort of two to three percent of the population. So again, not in perceptible amounts of people. <clears throat> and this is generally, I'm going to be very generalist about this, is typically characterized by alternating frequencies of people having extended periods of being peri elated. I'm not just talking about being a bit happy because you've had some positive news but quite elated where you're sort of full of energy and you're energetic and you're, you're, you know, you're constantly on the go and you, know, you may put yourself in dangerous situations because you're feeling elated and high and you can take on the world and you can achieve anything. Um, and, you know, these periods can go on for weeks or months uh, for some people, um, and that can be quite dangerous for people, followed by a period often of a similar length, sometimes shorter, of these extreme lows of what we see in people with clinical depression. Where all of a sudden you know for uh, for for unknown reasons, people can be from you know extremely energetic risk taking you know no need to sort of sleep to being completely you know crashed flat depressed, not wanting to you know carry on um which is obviously very confusing and difficult for people so the key for those is helping people maintain within uh as you know a range to manage those mental health symptoms. Um, so that is what we call severe mental illnesses. And sorry, that was rather long, but that's a bit about mental illnesses.
1: Thank you for that. That uh, it's great that you explained because my um, my next question is: um, in in your book, you present quite distressing data um, that people with severe mental illness are um, dying 15 to 20 years earlier than their peers without a mental illness. So, what are the underlying reasons?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, and distressing is the way to describe it. It's absolutely appalling. Um, that people with a severe mental illness diagnosis die on average 15 to 20 years earlier than, you know, me who doesn't have a diagnosis of a severe mental illness or, or, or anybody else who's listening. And it's tragic. It's really, really tragic. Um, and it's so sad and it happens and we've looked at data all across the world and we see this consistent relationship of this you know we call it the scandal of premature mortality for people with a severe mental illness diagnosis. Previously up until sort of 10, 15 years ago, it was thought most of this was due to people you know ending their own life, you know suicide and lots of fantastic work, and research has gone into sort of identifying people at risk of wanting to end their life or suicidal behaviour, and preventing people from doing that, and helping people to you know get better and feel well, which is which is wonderful. Um, and you know, people have done amazing things in that space. But the, the latest data consistently shows that around seventy percent of these early deaths, this scandal of premature mortality, of fifteen to twenty, sometimes even higher early deaths are due to common physical health comorbidities um, such as cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, respiratory disease, you know, or physical multimorbidity and combinations of these. So that is the actual underlying reason which contributes to a lot of, you know, this. If I look clinically, many of the people I work with have multiple physical health issues going on with them, you know, diabetes, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, smoking rates of, if you look at, you know, virtually any country, um, you see this great decline over time, um, over decades in terms of reduction in smoking rates, but we see a, a static or if not a slight rise in in terms of smoking rates of people with, mental illness. so there's some socioeconomic issues going on there, you know, they're not benefiting from the same public health messages. And the sad fact is that if you do have cardiovascular disease, which we and others have shown, um, if you have severe mental illness, you're much more likely to get cardiovascular disease in the general population. If you get it, you're much more likely to die from it. We've also shown that if you have severe mental illness and cardiovascular disease, you're less likely to be seen by a cardiologist, you're less likely to be prescribed a statin, and you're less likely to get the care you need. Similar thing we've shown for cancer as well. So there's this diagnostic overshadowing, you know, which happens even when people are really unwell. Um, so it's a very complex area. Um, and again, I could fill the rest of this time talking about the nuances of that. But my main message is we really, really need experts in physical activity, sedentary behavior, movement to come and help us in this environment. Um, because, you know, I don't need to tell anyone who listens to this podcast the physical health benefits um, of, you know, helping people to be more active, less sedentary. We have found, you know, the most, probably one of the most sedentary populations um, in, uh, you know, in, in any objectively reported population. If we put accelerometers on people, we see around 13 hours a day of people being sedentary during their waking hours, um, which, you know, is very, very high. So we need your help.
0: Join to stop the worldwide pandemic of inactivity. Are you a medical doctor, physical therapist, personal trainer, or someone else helping individuals in making a change towards a healthier, better life? Imagine a behavior change tool designed for professionals like you to help your clients achieve better results and at the same time provide you with more income. Fibion is that tool. It offers an evidence-based way for health and wellness professionals to extend their services into coaching. The only thing your client needs to do is put a tiny Fibion device into their pocket for a week. No buttons, no apps, no Bluetooth connections. Just a foolproof way to get scientifically accurate data easily. The device collects objective physical activity data from your client. Furthermore, it forms easy-to-understand visual feedback and lifestyle suggestions towards healthier choices that you can present and discuss with your client. An individual approach encourages and motivates clients to change their lifestyle patterns and gives you an opportunity to strengthen your expert status and distinguish from competition. Fibian helps you to educate and coach your clients through this change towards a more active and healthy life. Strengthen your expert status. Distinguish yourself from the competition. Order Fibion now at Fibion.com. That's F-I-B-O-N dot com.
1: So we know that uh, physical activity has a um, great benefit for people with mental mental health problems. Um. So does it mimic the effect of drugs or and then if it does, what's the best combination? Is it drugs plus physical activity or uh, what's your comments? what are your comments on that?
2: Sure so it's a great question. Um, so I think um, you know we can talk a little bit about clinical data and then we can talk a bit about real world data. So if I take depression, where most of the exercise randomized controlled trials have been done today um, in isolation uh, or, or added on to usual care, we know that exercise, you know, structured exercise, you know, including aerobic and strength training, can have a significant antidepressant effect, effect um, which is which is great over the short term and the long term. And um, one of the previous criticisms and the reluctance to the uptake of this, and we, and we wrote um, guidelines in this for the European Psychiatric Association. With many psychiatrists, psychologists, general practitioners, physiotherapists, exercise scientists, exercise psychologists, um, was one of the fair criticisms was that exercise for depression in this instance, you know, many of the trials didn't have large numbers of people and didn't have long term follow up. And I'd just like to highlight one, um, one study which really addressed these criticisms and, and, and also addresses your question. Um, it was by Matt Swargren and colleagues at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and they did this, um, three-armed randomized controlled trial where they followed up people with depression, um, over a 12-month period. So everybody received usual care, so whatever that was, and then, uh, over, it they had just under a thousand people, and they were randomized into carry on with usual care, so approximately 330 people, have CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy delivered via the internet, This is commonly recommended, advocated, you know, great for people who are struggling with depression, um, and other conditions as well as one group, you know, nobody has any qualms about that as a, as a regular treatment. And the other group had, um, exercise. And what they found after 12 months in this large, well-powered study is that broadly speaking, um, exercise and CBT delivered via the internet, were just as effective as each other significantly and sort of in terms of clinical benefits, but they were both of than treatment as usual. So when we start to think about the wider benefits of, of exercise more broadly, in terms of the physical health outcomes, the metrics, the potential for exercises is, is profound. Um, so uh, that, is the sort of, that is an example of some of the uh, research data and there's a small number of randomised controlled trials which have compared exercise versus some antidepressant medications, but they're quite small, it's a bit difficult to make any any you know firm conclusions from those and broadly speaking, this tends to be people who have more mild symptoms of depression, and you see similar effects uh, in terms of the outcomes. there's no difference when you compare exercise versus antidepressant medication. So, those are generally people who are who are who are less less unwell. so that's what we tend to see for people with clinical um depression now, the clinical reality of that before perhaps I talk about schizophrenia um is that you you know we would offer people you know a multitude of things um you know people would get seen by a psychiatrist and they would get access to a you know a nutrition or a dietitian to help them with. You know, food, we've done research showing about the importance of nutrition and what we eat, and then the Mediterranean style diet and outcomes. People get access to CBT as well, you know, if they need it, and talking therapy, you know, other therapeutic activities and access to exercise and physiotherapy. And the clinical reality is people benefit from all of these different things. Some people may benefit from medication. Some people may benefit from talking therapists. Some people may benefit from exercise. But the clinical reality is, you know, some work better for some people than others, and and some have side effects for others, and it, it, it varies. But the clinical reality is often a combination is used.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you, um, you also wanted to talk about schizophrenia when yeah, it comes you to yeah, just talk
2: about schizophrenia because yeah. we talk about these severe mental illness mm. where the other sort of strongest evidence base is for exercises interventions. Um, in in this particular population there's quite a good number of randomized controlled trials um, in this particular population and broadly speaking what we tend to see is that people can have improvements in cardiovascular fitness again we know how important this is to you know protect against various physical uh, conditions in the future and you know, protect us from dying early um, even when you don't see changes in weight um, you can also see reductions in mental health symptoms, improvements in cognitive function and outcomes, Um, cognitive dysfunction is uh, one of the core symptoms of people with schizophrenia as well, and it can also improve people's quality of life and possibly some physical health outcomes as well. And generally, as with any physical health care condition, much in line with any mental health care condition or mental illness, the earlier you start, the better your outcomes. You know, so when people come in for first treatment for mental health or maybe started on a medication or a new regime, helping people at the start, you tend to get better outcomes in the long run. So exercise is an evidence-based treatment for various different mental illnesses as part of a broader package. But clinical trial data suggests added on to usual care, it is more effective than usual care alone
1: so how often um, do you see exercise as routine care in a mental health service setting today um and what should be done to implement it better i've been talking previously in my podcast with people um about for example with dr mary kennedy we we talked about uh, implementing exercise into into cancer care and um she told about her experience in doing this in Australia and uh, and there there are some barriers usually and then there's facilitators. So um, what are your thoughts about the barriers and maybe overall about the implementation of exercise into routine care in mental health setting?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So I get to see both sides of the coin. Obviously, I'm very familiar with the, the evidence, with written guidelines you know, with Simon written a book to help translate the evidence for people uh, with contributions of lots of other experts um, and then I, you know, every week I see people on the ground so I know what it's like, I'm not just sitting in an academic office. Um, and my experience over my almost 20 year journey in mental health services is that we've had to fight quite an uphill battle initially, both, clin- both clinically and academically to get any particular kudos. Or protected time around exercise. Um, you know, you know, in the academic sphere, there are still some skeptics, you know, that sort of don't think exercise can help. I think most of those are realizing that actually exercise is a really you know, good evidence based approach we can use for a multitude of different things now. That's a huge shift in the last 20 years. Previously, it was just, you know, a very small select number of people would, you know, believe in, in the benefits of exercise. Technically, you know, if I use my example, when I first turned up on mental health units and started talking about, let's get people off the units and let's get people out exercising and moving. And people were like, what have we got physio here for? Like, in the most polite way, it wasn't as in being polite. In the consultant psychiatrist was like, what are we going to do with physiotherapists? Um, and he was, he was really polite, but like, what are we going to do with you? And I was like, well, this is what we can do. We can help people get moving and, you know, got people giving pedometers and tracking steps and trying to get people, you know, behavior change. So initially when I started, you know, there was just like, you know, big variations in practice, but people were just like, why oh, do we need this? Um, but thankfully, well, not thankfully, it's, that's, that's the wrong word. People have realized that physical health issues are a serious problem in, in mental health service users. So they recognise the value much more of the importance of helping people exercise and engage in lifestyle. So that has come over time as well, and that's seen a shift in terms of people wanting to invest and prioritise exercise and moving from, you know, a, a nice to have uh, or suspicious thing. Is this is a bit sort of you know out there to um, so sort of seeing a bit more moving towards a core part of practice. So what I tend to see now, sort of fast forwarding on through that journey, is you know where I work, for instance, we've, in, in in the secure hospital, we've got access to great facilities where we've got a gym, um, where you know, patients can go and use, typically scheduled in for three or four sessions a week, um, you know, which will include free weights and a big you know, gym to go and play sports and be invited to go and do group sports a couple of times a week, um, you know. Some motivated people are doing, you know, they're on the ground floors, they've got outdoor gyms which people can use at their own discretion as well. Um, and there's been an investment in terms of, you know, exercise facilities and also people doing exercise on the ground. So I tend to see patients getting offered exercise in forensic mental health services you know, at least three times a week would be standard. Whether everyone goes or not, you know, is completely varied because generally people are not feeling great in a mental health hospital when it takes some time.
1: And do you, when people go and exercise uh, in the units that you work with, is there somebody to guide them or do they do it on their own or is it, you know, both ways?
2: No, so um, where, where I work um, there will be uh, usually one or two um, exercise instructors or personal trainers. Um, who I work you know, very closely with. So we'll, we'll work closely together and sort of co-refer people down together or sometimes I'll go down, you know, you know, at the same time and, you know, introduce people to to the gym as well. So people are overseeing and supportive because we know um, and we've shown in studies and, you know, meta-analyses that, you know, if you want the best outcomes and you want the best adherence and you want the least dropout, Having someone to support and guide you through your exercise program, you know, is really beneficial to reduce dropouts, maintain motivation, and get better health and um, uh, social outcomes too.
1: Definitely. Um, so, I will still ask you about the um, the barriers and facilitators. I think I read from your book maybe that quite often we speak about uh, what physicians or or medical, uh, doctors should do to prescribe or people exercise. Um, but what could, uh, the exercise industry do to gain, gain trust, um, so that the physicians, for example, would prescribe exercise. Do you have any ideas about for that, like for, for the maybe physiotherapists or exercise specialists, what could they do better?
2: Sure, it's a great question. Well, I think I'd go back to one of my first original points, and you know, reference that mental health and mental illness is all of our business. I'm sure we all know someone who struggled with their mental health, if, if not ourselves. Um, so, uh, you know, it, this is just not something which happens in mental health hospitals. There will be people who will benefit. It's important that we make an open hand and we provide support for people who may struggle to get to the gym or get to an exercise environment to uh, make allowances. Uh, And one of the things that I will say in the context of the UK, which is obviously where I know best in terms of implementation, is we have a pretty good setup in primary care or GP. So if you go with your GP and you're struggling with one of those common mental health conditions I spoke about at the beginning, depression or anxiety, then you can get um, reduced. You can get reduced or free access to a gym and a personal training session. Um, you know to go and help with that, um, uh, which I think is fantastic. Because you know, if if you're not great or perhaps you're not working and you're off work, you know you just don't feel great and confident. Then going into a, a you know gym or an exercise space or taking up something new or you've not done for a while. Having that support and someone who has empathy and, and, you know, time for you to listen and patience, you know, it's just absolutely pivotal. Um, so I think that's really, really important. So, uh, you know, education, making and creating opportunities, giving people time is really, really important. Um, and then I will say around people with, who have severe and enduring mental illness, um, People can also get uh, you know invited to uh, go and use gyms and other facilities for free. but of course, if if one of your symptoms and you have schizophrenia or psychosis is, is if you think people are looking at you or people may be, you know thinking horrible things about you, then going into a gym could be a pretty daunting task anyway, as could any environment. I know for myself if I go into a new gym I've not been to before. You know, you walk in and, you know, it could be busy and everybody looks like they know what they're doing. Everybody knows each other and you think they just, you know, just think, gosh, here's the, you know, the new guy. Everybody knows, you know, here's the new guy. But, of course, nobody thinks that. I mean, you know, that is me slightly moving along that sort of spectrum of, you know, paranoid thinking. I don't have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. You know, I'm sure we've all sort of felt that to varying degrees. We feel a bit like, gosh, it's, you know, people looking at me. You know this is attenuated. You know to you know a very high level on average. Not for everyone. For people with schizophrenia, where you may be heightened, sensitive, worried, anxious, concerned about that. So I think when helping people with severe mental uh, illness conditions, again education is really important. You know patience for pe- with people. Um, you know people can struggle with motivation. Early mornings are often a challenge for people, uh, and, and don't write people off. Um, you know it's often difficult for people who have mental health symptoms to, to, to get up and make appointments uh, I'm, I'm generalizing here and if someone doesn't turn up once or twice you know really give people time and really encourage people to you know to keep coming and don't just you know give up on people and then when people do come just you know making sure that first session those early session you know really you know successful for people because you know like we all want to. We all want to feel that we can go and do something and achieve something. And in my clinical anecdotal experience, this is heightened uh, and attenuated for people with mental illness, and particularly those with severe mental illness. You know, I've got a friend with uh, uh, schizophrenia um, and I just know how important that is to make people feel welcome um, and to feel a sense of success and achievement early on. So I think those are the things that we can do well.
1: No, oh, thank you for that. I think it's uh, these are important factors for all of us, and especially uh, with a mental mental illness. So I think it's a great time to sum up our first part of this episode of this podcast episode with you. Uh, but just before we end up the first part, uh, where could people find you, and how could people reach you if they wish to do so?
2: Well. If you've made it this far, congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> and if you would like to know more, you can find me. I'm on Twitter. Um, Brendan Stubbs is my tag. Um, I'm also on Instagram. Um, I think if you search Brendan Stubbs, I should come up. Um, those are the main places to find me. And if you're really eager, and enthusiastic, search Pep PubMed and get my email and send me an email. That's always welcome.
1: And uh, I would really like to recommend your book to all healthcare. Uh, professionals. So uh, from where can people uh, buy your book?
2: Sure. So just to say about the book, we and many other experts wrote this because, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, lots of evidence has happened and we contributed to a large portion of evidence around exercise for different mental health conditions, you know, anxiety, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, postpartum, you know. Female, you know, mental health conditions, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, eating disorders. There's all of this evidence, a lot of which we haven't had time to discuss today. And we wanted to put it together in a practical book to say, what are these conditions? Why may exercise be indicated? What does the evidence say? And how can I implement and evaluate this in practice? So we put that together in a book. Um, And if you search for the title, evidence-based exercise interventions um, Brendan Stubbs and Simon Rosenbaum it should come up um, and it's available online um, and yeah people can find it there
1: great so thank you to all our listeners and thank you Brendan we will uh, continue with the second part Uh, but until then bye bye for everybody